Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. My guest today is Elizabeth Alexander. Elizabeth is a decorated poet, memoirist, and the president of the Mellon Foundation, which is the largest arts and cultural funder in America. She is the author of several books, including one of my personal favorites, The Light of the World and The Trayvon Generation. You may also remember her from President Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration, where she read her poem, Praise Song for the Day. I was thrilled to sit down with Elizabeth for so many reasons, but particularly because April is National Poetry Month. I'm fascinated by how writing has the power to move things out of our body and put them in front of us on the page. We discussed poetry as a mental health tool, and we also talked about keeping alive the work of the people who came before us. We talked about how creativity can be in service of our communities, the difference between evolution and revolution, and her vision for the future of the Mellon Foundation under her leadership. At the end, Elizabeth reads us a poem that I think is a beautiful reminder of how connection can lead us towards collective healing. Okay, let's get to my chat with Elizabeth Alexander. I was listening to The Light of the World for the first time because I read it when it first came out, but I always say that like, that book is the book you buy but never get to keep because you just give it away constantly. I mean, there's not a person who doesn't come into your house or your world who doesn't 
need that book. So I never get to have it. It's amazing to me all these years later, it is literally not a week goes by that I don't hear about somebody who the book has been for. The richness of that, it just makes it worth everything. I think that when someone who you love passes and 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 you're and you're with a friend and in community with somebody who's grieving, there's no right thing to say and there's no right thing to do because it's all wrong because <laughs> it, it it's it's the thing that doesn't feel right ever. And the only offering there there is are, are books, you know. And, and mm-hmm. I think on of of someone saying in this life I've lived this too or through this, and I think it gives people so much hope to hear or read someone going through it. Also, I feel like Maya Angelou said it really well when she talked about becoming pregnant with her son. And she said, when having my son gave me the courage to invent my life. Mm. And I think you have done also such amazing work in legacy of not only your lead husband and also African-American dream work and in, in, in our country, especially. And I guess I kind of want to start with do you feel that you ever had that moment of inventing yourself of this idea of something happened or I, I felt something, I met someone and I got to start the journey of becoming who I was in this kind of fiery way? Hmm. I think that with one of my close friends who shares my love of theater and song, when we're being funny with each other and when something big has happened, I'll text him and say, hear me singing Jennifer Holiday, I am changing in dream girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, oh my God. You know, when something, something, it just, when you can feel that you are shifting, when you can see the light of a new idea or a new purpose, mm-hmm. and you know that you have to attend to that and stay focused with that and not be afraid of it and feed it and let it happen. I like to think that that happens not every day, maybe not every year, but every couple of years, Mm. you know, kind of just recalibrating our mission or how we want to learn and grow. Certainly though, quite explicitly when Fikre, my late husband passed, it was such a stark moment And on the one hand, I knew that there was only one thing to do, which was raise our children. And that was the raison d'etre for every day. That was the absolutely, the thing I had to do, the thing that nobody else could do, and the thing that kept me moving in purpose. But also, I think, because he passed very unexpectedly a few days after we had beautifully celebrated his 50th birthday and I was about to turn 50. And so it was one of those moments where, you know, quite clearly nothing is promised to us. Life is short. How do you show your children resilience and courage and vulnerability at the same time? And so I decided pretty quickly that I was going to move us from New Haven to New York City, which was a a literal decision that I wanted the children to be in a larger place, a more diverse place, a place where they weren't in the fishbowl of being the kids whose dad died, where we had 
other ties. We had many deep, deep, deep ties in New Haven, but a wider field of ties, even in New York. I wanted them to become city kids. We had always wanted them to become city kids. So there was the practicality of that decision. But then as it happened, I didn't know that that was opening up a chapter in my life where I would completely change careers, where I would go into workspace that I literally never would have dreamed or imagined. And that I would be saying yes to so many things that were not part of the plan. Although I must say, I've never been someone who made one plan. I just stayed working hard (laughs) and tried to stay open. The structure of the light of our world reminds me so much of the structure of Generations by Lucille Clifton, because I think it kind of gets you on a roll back into a ritual that is so beautiful for us. And in your book, I think when people are going through a really hard time, the way that your book is written is is in a series of these beautiful poetic vignettes that tell the story of of your love story and and the life. I think there's such a focus on the life, even though obviously what's confident is the passing. And But I have this copy of this book, which as you probably know, is so hard to find. It's one of my most prized possessions. But in it, there's this inscription from the previous owner of the book quoting Lucille Clifton in it. And and, and the quote, she says, July 1986 to Barbara, things don't fall apart, things hold, lines connect in thin ways that last and last. Hmm. And I was so reminded of these words by Lucille Clifton and that inscription, because your book really made me think of that and feel that, that the way that things hold and hold. Thank you for bringing Lucille into the conversation. She is, is present tense, one of my poetry mothers, one of my unexpected added mothers in life. I came to her first through her poems when I was probably 12 or 13. And I think I love what you said about short form because I, the light of the world certainly is a poet's prose. Each chapter is very, very distilled and follows the poetic logic of language first. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to tell a story in order. I was trying to let the language take me to the piece that I wanted to share. But I never thought about about that book as being influential on the light of the world. But of course, it, it, it is because believing that a book of prose can be a strand of pearls right? Mm-hmm. And I write about Lucille's poem where, where she talks about the passing of her husband, Fred Clifton at 46, and about how strange it was to watch his soul leave his body and how you keep those people with you. So, so she's infused in the book. I learned so much about mothering and being a poet from her. And she talks about also short form and its practicality, right? That if you got all these things going on, you may not be able to write a lengthy epic. Yeah. But I think the meditative aspect of her work, her absolute profundity, her pithy analysis, all of the things that she does in tiny spaces are so exemplary. And and this is work that I come back to quite regularly. I mean, it's, it's literally a holy book for me because I will also see different things in the poems from when I was 12, when I was older, when I was older. 
And tying this to your earlier point about ancestral dream work and about my devotion to African-American culture and the responsibility, I I think, of keeping alive the work of our ancestors and the people who made us possible. And I think what's so fascinating is the mission and the set of opportunities for an earlier generation is not the same as what we might have opportunity to do, what we might be called to do, but it's all on a continuum. I think it's more complicated than they cleared the path so we can do the thing. Mm-hmm. No, I think they did the thing. And now what's the thing that we have to do yeah. that is going to look a little bit different because who would have imagined, I mean, where our culture is right now and all of the challenges to the truth and all of the lies about what America is and how it was made and and who made it. I would have thought 30 years ago when I first started out as a professor in African-American studies that we were moving a little bit more inexorably forward. I do think that we've moved forward in ways that can't be taken back. And this I know from decades as an educator teaching, you know, in completely mixed classrooms in in various American universities and seeing students who say, why wasn't I taught this? Why wasn't I told this? Why over in the English department are they saying Lucille Clifton's not poetry? Why didn't I read Gwendolyn Brooks? Why didn't I know Robert Hayden's Those Winter Sundays was written by a black poet? That changes how I think about it. And the exhilaration from being filled with this genius, all this genius, I see now because I have all these generations of students doing wonderful things that are mostly not poetry or culture. You know, they're doing all sorts of other things in the world, but they have carried our culture with them wherever they go. So this is how I I know that we're not even yet able to measure where the opening of black studies has taken us, even as we're in these crazy times. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. We often hear the, the, the famous Nina Simone words that it's an artist's duty to reflect the time. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about that with my girlfriends, we often add in themselves to reflect the times in themselves. Because in the vein of kind of, you know, Whitman's eye contained multitudes, history contains multitudes. And so when the artists are reflecting themselves within the times in very intimate, intimate, intimate ways, we have the 
anthems of, of, of what's going on by Marvin Gaye and, and, and beautiful song in that way. And then we have these kind of the, the smaller interior moments that I find so often in your poetry and in your, in your mission as an educator and now with the Mellon Foundation, it's almost like you have that Tony Morrison spirit of preserving, 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 gathering, 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 all while being this amazing artist and creator. And how, how do you kind of move between both sides of your brain in that way? Or, and what is that kind of like for you? I loved your latest book, The Trayvon Generation, based on the essay that was so beautiful. And there's always artists that are kind of dripping off the pages. I mean, there are so many artists that I was introduced to because they were the covers of some of your poetry books. Mm -hmm. You just kind of living in it and then finding this is where this energy belongs and this is where this energy belongs. And how do you carve out the time for your own creative self? your own, you know, the work you do that reflects the times, the work you do that reflects the self. You know, you mentioned Toni Morrison, who has always been, I mean, you know, she's otherworldly in her artistic creation. So to say, you know, she's a writer who's influenced me is like saying the sky is the sky. I mean, I don't even know what to to say about uh, that. I I use the alphabet when I, when I, that's right. That's right. But I think, you know, in early days, I really knew about her. I remember reading this in interviews where she would talk about rising before dawn and meeting the light Mm -hmm. that she would make her coffee and write into the light. And I always thought that that was an amazing practice and metaphor, but that she was doing that. Why? Because at, six o'clock, the two sons she was single mothering would get up and needed care. And then she'd have to get them off to school. And then she'd have to get on the train to the city to the day job as an editor. And by the way, in that day job as an editor, I mean, she, she is the most influential editor of black writing in history. The Lucille's Generations, Angela Davis's autobiography, Muhammad Ali's autobiography, Gail Jones, Leon Forrest. It goes on and on and on. Oh, my goodness. You know, and all, all, I mean, every book she made had, as an editor, had the Black Book, a book that I've taught with forever and ever and ever. There it is. So I think that what is in that is a practicality. She was a working mother and, you know, those first novels were not going to support those kids. The first three novels before, you know, things got yeah. much larger with Beloved. I think also, I mean, I make a just a funny little joke with myself. I'm like, well, I'm a Gemini, which is to say that I like more than one thing going on yeah. at the same time, but I'm practical too. So I knew that to be a poet, there had to be another gig, another structure And what I always loved about teaching was I could take these precious things and talk about them with other people who, if they didn't start out caring about them, would come to care about them. Mm -hmm. And that actually the university made a place for a a writer. And what I've always tried to do in any kind of administrative capacity in university life is make space for artists, Mm -hmm. find resources, bring people, bring people in, send folks out, understand that the boundary between the university and the rest of the world did not have to be so set. And that in a well-resourced university, bringing culture in was, you know, part of what would make them alive spaces. And I think that that just moves forward to my work in philanthropy. 
helping resource the folks who are doing incredible and visionary work and that it's important to have the value of distributing excess wealth to visionaries. So I think that also I have learned that there are chapters in life so that we can't, and I think women especially, can make ourselves a little crazy thinking that we're supposed to be doing everything on all cylinders at all times, every single moment of our lives. Yeah. You know, when my when my first son was born, a child who will turn 25, but I remember thinking, okay, you know, time to be a mom and not a writer because I can't be those two things at the same time. And then when I would nurse him late at night in those magical deep hours, language was very free and wild and strange and beautiful in my head. And of the you know million gifts our children give us, I say that that child gave me the reminder that I was always a poet, even if I didn't write it down that I was, that I was always, always a poet. And then, you know, my kids are are back to back. So it's like a little startling. I believe in staying in mode, but you know, as you know, it means that there's a lot going on. And that was when a very wise older woman faculty member said to me, you have time, just give it time. You don't have to do it all at once. Yeah. And that was just really powerful. I mean, I, I I never had been one who thought, you know, oh, I must write, you know, one book this year or one chapter this month. I don't quite work that way. As I said, yeah. I just kind of stay working. But to realize there are seasons. And for me now, this season in philanthropy, to do it well, to do it powerfully, to do it strategically, to do it effectively, to build and inspire a team who can carry the work out. I have needed to bring my creativity to that. Yeah. I'm not trying to do it just to do it. I'm trying to do it in a really transformational way to the greatest extent that I can. So that means that there aren't poems right now. And and that's okay. I mean, that is just so okay. I learned uh, to say more about what it meant to be a poet, even if you I wasn't writing it down to be encountering the world with poets' eyes, to be living deeply in language and its possibilities and its suggestions and its power. And once again, I mean, I just have always thought, and this is the part of me that is a race woman too, per my parents, per my family, I think that it's not about just me, having the time and space to write poems and books. That's just a blip. It's about a culture where people are valued who do that work. And if I have the ability to be helpful to someone doing the hard work of visioning, I better figure out how to do it to the greatest possible extent. I feel that you were raised in a household where service was so at this kind of center of finding purpose, because I think most people are looking for purpose. That's something people ask me all the time. How do, how do I find my purpose? How do I find my purpose? Yes. And, I, and I often say, think less about, you know, finding a purpose and more about what you do that you can bring purpose to. 
And I think that if you're bringing purpose to enough things, it kind of guides you into something that is very rooted in service. And then you kind of feel that feeling of a million tiny things becoming one big thing. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that that your upbringing and, and that kind of centering of service made you kind of the woman you are in a way? I feel that you're always working towards service regardless of the medium, because I feel that the poetry you write is of deep service to us. And then there's these kind of creating that the justice fund is of, of extreme service to us. And do you think that that has a lot to do with your upbringing? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that just trying to be as generous as possible. And if you think about it at the simplest level, if you have a sandwich and you sit there all by yourself and eat your sandwich, it may be absolutely delicious and you may be full, but if you give half your sandwich to someone else and enjoy that food together, you, you know, I mean, it's sort of a principle that there is something humanly multiplicative about being generous. And I was also certainly taught as a very little child that hoarding was bad. Yeah. Not sharing is bad. Yeah. That you you have to share. You really, 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 really have to share. And I think that further in teaching, as we talked about earlier, you just see how, you know, it can be very lonely to be just in the world of making things by yourself. Yeah. And suddenly you belong to more. I think that also my parents taught me very explicitly just because you're in the room, just because you're in the fancy school, just because you're in whatever place, the privilege of your learning, the privilege of your education, it's not because you're more special than other people. It's, it's just because you have that privilege. So what are you going to do with it? How are you going to share it? How are you going to bring other people with you? I mean, that was a, a very, very explicit value when I was, was growing up. And as Black people, <laughs> you never want to be the only person. The idea is not to be the only one. Yeah. The idea is to have as many people as possible in the room and, and to, to nurture possibility. And to say, okay, here, you know, th this is what's happening over here. And that, that it really is not okay to, to have a kind of sense of exceptionalism. Yeah. I think that knowledge and critical thinking, it is inert if you don't share it. Mm. You know, it's it's got to be activated so that it can do what it's supposed to do. You talked in, in, in the Trayvon generation about evolution versus revolution. Hmm. Could you share a little bit of your ideas? Yeah, you know, I kind of came to clarity about that idea recently because when I now almost five years ago came to the Mellon Foundation, I think that probably my colleagues would say that evolution is the word I use the most. Hmm. Talking about evolving a legacy institution where the work that we fund is in arts, culture, humanities, libraries, archives. That's always for 50 some years been what the Mellon Foundation funds. But to come in and say, now we are a social justice foundation. And so that means that we're thinking about what stories haven't been told, what organizations and people and cultures are under-resourced and what happens when we bring some equity to that. It was 
in some ways revolutionary to name that dramatically in the beginning and say like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. And even in the, in the process of being interviewed for, for the job, I was very clear that to the board, if this is not what you want, that is fine. But then I'm not, I'm not your woman. Cause that's what we're going to do from day one. That's going to necessitate not just coming in with big ideas, but building and transformation and evolution. So, you know, the evolution is how the work plays out of the structure of, of the staff of who our grantees are and how we work with them. And as you make one change, then you realize, ah, there's 10 other changes we need to make in order to, to let this happen. And, and I think that there are some periods that are, you know, sometimes evolution can feel a little bit quiescent because it's not as dramatic as the moment of declaration. Yeah. And I think that we need both. I think that we need both, you know, declaration so that everyone can see and say and mantra and follow and, and, and figure out what it looks like and what it could look like. But, you know, institutions must evolve. Society must evolve. We individually must evolve. We cannot stay static. The world is not static. What role do you think love plays in all of this and and, and in change making? Mm, Well, I think who was it who, oh, June Jordan, who in her essay where she talks about where is the love Mm -hmm. and she says, you have to know what you're fighting against, but even more importantly, you need to know what you're fighting for. What is the yes? Where's the love? What are you moving towards? Mm. And I have, I have always taken that as a mantra and I am a fighter and I think you, I think we have to be fighters out here and, you know, there are dragons to try to slay, Mm -hmm. but I think ultimately the power of love taking the form of, and, you know, this is why in my inaugural poem for president Obama, that, you know, there's a line about love beyond marital filial love that casts a widening pool of light love with no need to preempt grievance mm. i've been interested for some time in really taking love out of the romantic realm out yeah. of the dyadic realm not that it doesn't exist there and that you know i think that the love that can be between two people is actually a powerful life force that can do tremendous things if you circle it back out again. Right. But I, and I've just really over time and, you know, some of it was about entering into a very large extended family on my, my husband's part, big, literally an African village, but also believing in adding chosen family to your family and the power of village that we can't, nor should we do it alone. That, you know, to to invoke Gwendolyn Brooks, who, as you know, has been so incredibly important yeah. to me, this whole idea that runs completely throughout her work, writing about her 10 blocks on the south side of Chicago, other people's children, there's no such thing as other people's yeah. children. You know, we are each other's business. We are each other's business. We are each other, we are each other's magnitude and bond. Yeah. So I don't even know anything bigger than that. Right. And I think that for us to understand that love, and I've been interested in this a lot when I think about one of my Ars Poetica's poems where I say, you know, poetry is not love, love, love. Yeah. Sorry, the dog died. Right. Yeah. Not to diminish those things, 
but to say like love is so much bigger. And I think that too, you know, in the classroom, I come in saying, look at this. I am a proselytizer for wanting all of them to love that Gwendolyn Brooks poem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They might not like it as their favorite, but they have to love it. Yeah. And and so I think that saying, here's where we're going, y'all. Here's what's amazing. Here's what's beautiful. Here's what will change your thinking. Here's what will show you another way to be. And I feel the precise same way about the work that we support with our grants, the the work that amazing work that people are doing. So I am also just the Pied Piper for that work. And that's about love. One thing that you, um, in in the Trayvon Generation book is that language is one of the ways we share our perspectives, our very selves, and one of the zones of hope I have for reaching across the voids between us. Mm -hmm. For people who are afraid to speak up, I often feel that people who are good at speaking up or usually surrounded by other people who are good at speaking up or expressing themselves or saying or doing, what would you say to someone who is struggling to find their voice and, and maybe what would help lead them towards language and, and its power and for their lives and in their communities and their families? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that, and I, and I write about this in the Trayvon generation, language is kind of what we have. Yeah language is how we can really give ourselves to each other. It's how we can really be known. I do not think there's any escaping it. I do believe it's how we, you know, share our souls. And I do believe it's how we reach across what we might think is difference, which is such crucial and important work. I think that's separate from the question of using your voice. I think that you know, some people are quiet. And one of the things you have me thinking about teaching a lot today, one of the things that I remember about teaching and that we all know about having been in school is that there's always the kid in the class who's like, ooh, 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 mm-hmm. they got their hand up before you even finish talking. And there's always the quiet one. Yeah. And so in managing that classroom dynamic, because, you know, I think that the classroom, it's a community and it can't exist without everybody's voice. Sometimes with, if you will, the quiet one, I would say, okay, I want afterthoughts from everybody. Take 15 minutes in the days after class and send it to what would have at the time been the email group. Mm. Just, you know, you're not writing an essay. You're just sharing some thoughts. And that became a way that 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 all of the voices could be heard and that the learning could continue because, you know, it's not just about using your voice to say, and now we shall do this. It's about using your voice to make a collective thing. Right. You know, I hear what you're saying. Ah, okay. I hadn't thought of it that way. Let me shift it that way. I also really follow something that my father said to me that I, I offer up as much as possible. He said, Always use your voice because you never know who's listening. Someone out there needs your voice. You may not know it in the moment. That was a crucial part mm-hmm. that you might say what you have to say and the room is silent. Maybe the room even feels hostile, mm. but someone is always listening. And so I, I think that's not even so much about leadership. I think that's about 
shared humanity. I think we've probably all had the experience in school as students where you're thinking something and then someone else says it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, particularly, you know, for women or for people of color, you know, and we sometimes don't necessarily feel initially sovereign in the space. Yeah. You know, when you hear someone else say, it's like, ah, I was, I was going to say that, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. I think that feeling of holding back and, and not being counted yeah, is one that I would hope that, that more people could, could come out of. Something you also named that I love is contributing to community as the listener. I remember kind of, you know, in the past five, well, now like, you know, since 2016, mm-hmm. when we kind of came into this new wave of protest and, and we'd say to young people, speak up, speak up, speak up, say something. And in that we have to remember to listen Yes, and to be the listener and to hold the space for that. I remember going to a March for Our Lives march and someone interviewed me and said, what do you want to say today? And I said, I, I'm just here to listen because if we're asking these high school people to speak up and say something and march, these things need witnesses for these testimonies. And we also need to be listeners for, for, for young people. And, and all people really in, in, in community. Yes. And I think that, you know, one of the calls in the Trayvon generation is for cross-generational communication and making the path forward. Because I think that sometimes, I think sometimes young people are not listened to enough, but I also think sometimes elders and oh, kind of everybody in between get left behind too. And it's not even why should we reinvent the wheel, but rather there is just so much mutual learning. And, 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 you know, one of the things that in talking about how, what we do with our creativity in service of a better society in service of community, I talk a little bit about the incredible style and verve and linguistic creativity with which black social movements have been embodied. You know, we bring all of that to our leadership. And so I think that that's something that younger folks have to learn from as well. In a world where people are able to kind of really, I think, emotionally or and from, I don't know, from tough places or unhealed places within, be able to use language online, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram and comments and just saying anything. I, I Whenever I would mentor young girls in New York, I would always say, imagine that everything you say is a spell. What would these words do if, if, if it, you know, a spell is, 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 is is exact, do you know, one kind of word is off the cauldron doesn't brew. And so I would say, what would your words create? If, you know, abracadabra means I say it and it is, what would Mm -hmm. yours, what would yours create? And I say that as I'm a devout, you know, nonviolent communication gal. So I, I always would say that, you know, that thing you say about your mother or your sister or your friend or your community or yourself, what if it's a spell? What if it, 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 it exists after the second you say it? Because in a way it does. Mm-hmm. And so Love that it is National Poetry Month. And I feel so lucky to, to have you here. And, and part of what I wanted to talk to you about was how we use poetry as a mental health tool and and how we can Mm. use language 
to move things out of our body and put them in front of us, which I know you've Mm -hmm. spoken about in in the light of the world. And I've always said that even if you're not a writer, write because it's an inventory, you deserve to get to know yourself and to see it on the page is such a, is is it the most intimate conversation without the battling of bribing yourself away from this thought or that thought it's, it exists. And and here's your history for you to know yourself. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about how poetry as the specific art of writing it has helped you in your heart space and your mental head space. And, and why do you think everyone should write or, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what writing does that's so good for us or can be? Well, so I do think everyone should write. And I don't think that writing is the same thing for everyone, right? I mean, so I think that the business of making a poem that, you know, has a level of truth and craft that it can speak to someone else and then putting that out in the world in a published form, you know, that's different from listening to yourself. And as you say, I mean, I like that about getting it out of your body. If you think about all of the words and all of the experiences and all of the feelings that are rattling inside us at any given moment. For me, writing of any kind, turning out a polished poem, turning out a piece of prose, writing an email, Mm. writing a letter, writing a note to myself is a way of coming to clarity with the swirl Mm -hmm. of what I'm feeling. And I think that also writing makes me feel, I think it makes people feel less alone in the world in two ways. When you have made the written thing, even if it never goes to anybody else, you have company with your words, right? Mm. You've, 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 you've given it form and you are not alone. You've made another being. Yeah. I think that when you when you share those words out, if that's what you you do with the work, just as for our lives as readers, I reading makes us less alone in the world. Reading is a way, and this I love so much, you know, in the philanthropic work, one of my very, 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 very favorite projects and people of all time is Dwayne Betts's Freedom Reads, mm-hmm. you know, putting 500 book libraries in each and every prison in this entire yes. country because reading allows you to imagine freedom, yeah. right? Reading reading allows you to put yourself in the life and experience of another. Reading lets you go to time travel. It lets you place travel. Mm-hmm. It literally makes us less alone in the world. When you read, I mean, we were talking about the light of the world earlier and what I found to be so beautiful about the ways that people have met that book in the world is that, yes, you know, some people suddenly lost a spouse at the same point in life, but most of the people are talking about loss at different moments in time because none of us can outrun grief. And why is that? Well, back to love because we we feel loss because we have loved yeah you know plain and simple so i have found it so beautiful when 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 young people say to me this book was a love story i want to i want to have a romance like that i want to i want to feel that way with a person mm. people who talk to me about what it means to see 
two black people from different parts of the world mm-hmm. making different kinds of black culture and family together. People who talk to me about the intimacy of family life and how that again is not just about the two who are in the romance, but that the children are a part of that too. You know, all of the different ways, unexpected to me as the writer, that people have said, this book made me feel less alone. Yeah. And I just think you can't, to go all the way through this life feeling alone, you know, we, we want to feel that we're not alone because we're not. And I think that it's a, I know that when I've gifted it to people who are experiencing grief, there's this reminder that it was all very important. Every moment that we would call a little moment, I think the big stuff is kind of the little stuff of our lives. And so I think that for people to be in in each moment, I think also kind of reminds them to go into their own moments and know that it was all important. This one conversation, this recipe, you know, the, the sauce. And I think that is such value to people to just remind them, you know, that their story is worthy because I think that sometimes grief makes us feel so insignificant or what is the purpose of anything? What isn't, what is worth anything? And and we all struggle with self-worth issues so profoundly that when someone's saying to you by kind of by exemplifying it, by living it, every moment was really worthy of something. And, and, and yes. these beautiful memories are so important, although they may seem like a small moment in the day. Look at what they, they collect into a book, they collect into a love story, they collect into a life. We are also connected by so much sorrow, by so much of the almost unimaginably hard things that we are going through collectively as a society. And if there's a moment to share a poem. Yes, I would love that. This is a poem from decades ago that I just think really speaks to really what we've been talking about and connecting. And it's by Muriel Rukeyser, who's a poet who's meant a lot to me. And it is just called Poem. So I should know the exact date this was written, but I think this is written in the early 60s. But the early 60s, just to think about how relevant this is today. Poem. I lived in the first century of world wars. Most mornings, I would be more or less insane. The newspapers would arrive with their careless stories. The news would pour out of various devices, interrupted by attempts to sell products to the unseen. I would call my friends on other devices. They would be more or less mad for similar reasons. Slowly, I would get pen to paper, make my poems for others unseen and unborn. In the day, I would be reminded of those men and women brave, setting up signals across vast distances, considering a nameless way of living, of almost unimagined values. As the lights darkened, as the lights of night brightened, we would try to imagine them, try to find each other, to construct peace, to make love, to reconcile waking with sleeping, ourselves with each other, ourselves with ourselves. We would try by any means to reach the limits of ourselves, to reach beyond ourselves, to let go the means to wake. I lived in the first century of these wars. 
So that poem just really, really blows me away. I mean, I mean, and even the sort of prescience of different devices and communicating for different devices and what it feels to be alone as you receive the day's hard news mm. and the need to connect across time and space. That is what I wanted to share. Thank you so much. Well, this is was a great pleasure. Thank you for joining me in conversation with Elizabeth Alexander. You can learn more about the Mellon Foundation and their current initiatives at mellon.org. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Goop Podcast.